0: You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go-hard or go-home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today, we have the co-founders of Cold Fever and Black Tech Week, Felicia Hatcher and Derek Pearson. How's it going? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you? We met up in Austin at South by Southwest. Talk about your experience there and what type of stuff you guys were doing in Austin. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, every year for me, uh, South by is kind of a sensory overload in a bit with just like so much going on. But we were there because we were uh, kicking off our 10 our city tour. Austin was a first stop for us. Uh, we had three events that we did. So a fireside chat with the program manager um, from the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. We did some VC residents, like mini sessions in partnership with uh, Kaufman Foundation and tech.co. And then we hosted our annual um, meetup that we do, our Black Tech Week meetup that we do uh, in the lobby of the JW Marriott. So it was a fun time of just kind of getting people together and then also just being able to experience South By right and everything that it provides. So uh, the panels, the parties, the parties, the parties, but then just like good people that we usually don't see throughout the year except for at South By.
0: You guys are the hardest working couple, team, in Black Tech. Walk us through uh, the audience in terms of where you guys are from, how you guys met, and how are you guys managing being married and family, but you guys are still you know, working hard in the streets and pushing mm-hmm. your movement forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, you don't want to know how we met other than we met in D.C., because it's a long story that we both have two uh, different versions of. But we, we met in uh, D.C., okay. No, his is not the correct version. Mine is the correct version, but whatever. Uh, but we met in D.C. Uh, maybe about, like, what, 11 years ago? And I'm originally from Delray Beach, Florida. Derek is from from Georgia. And I would love to say every single day is, you know, the the same, but it's not, right? It's uh, we run a lot of programming. We have a team that helps us with a lot of programming. So no, uh, no two days are, are the same. And I think we actually kind of like, like it that way.
2: So I'm from Bainbridge, Georgia. Small city, 30 minutes north of Tallahassee, Florida, and 30 minutes south of Albany, Georgia. Um, just to give you some indication that it's in the southwest uh, corner of the state. Like Felicia said, it's it's no two days are ever alike. It's about like the mission of the organization and what you want to accomplish. So, what do you want to be? Uh, what do you want to be known for? What what do you what do you think your life purpose is? So, I think my life's purpose is to again change the lives for Black people and be a pillar in the community, as well as to create wealth for myself and my family. Um, so I live every day like it's my last, and I, I go for what I want. So um, and again, that's what I feel my purpose is. And that's what I feel that I want. So when we go and we do these events and we stay up late nights and we have these debates on the the correct way we should be moving and 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 pursuing things in this world. It's always fun. It's always fulfilling. So it's never it's never a job.
0: Talk about what is Black Tech Week and Code Mm -hmm. Fever. Uh, Share that with our audience. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so we started Code Fever about four years ago to address a need. So uh, Miami's startup ecosystem had just kind of like sprouted out with a lot of organizations, mostly like the Knight Foundation, wanting to put a concentrated effort around building Miami's um, tech and startup ecosystem. And very quickly, we realized that it just it wasn't inclusive of the black community and we wanted to do something about it. And so we started Code Fever originally just to kind of address one, you know, the talent, um, the talent and the training issue. I think the exposure to our community because. They were just, our community was just being left out of the conversation, the activity, like all of it. And then also just wanting to be able to build an ecosystem, but then also just kind of help resources cross bridges. And so it was a lot that we were trying to accomplish, but we started off just like training young people and training their parents and then just doing like some monthly, like kind of like info sessions. Um, at Miami-Dade College, just like Carrie Peak Entrepreneurship Center in Liberty City of just like, this is what's going on, like these are the programs that are here, just so our community knew what was going on, essentially kind of like on the other side of the tracks. But, and then we quickly, after Code Fever, we quickly launched Black Tech Week because we just realized that tr- one, training is just not enough, right? And if we want to ensure success of, of people in our community, whether they want to, Launch a startup. They want to launch a you know small a traditional small business, or they wanted to have a career in STEM. There are a lot of things that need to be within arm's reach. So access to mentorship, um, access to training programs, um, access to like spaces and those spaces kind of existing in our neighborhoods, um, but then also access to funding, right? And at least have those things within an arm's reach and not constantly trying to figure out where the hell do I go to like find this or or understand like the context of that and so that's where Black Tech Week came from is like how do we if not any week throughout the year here in South Florida how do we put those things together within arm's reach of our community and so that everyone can kind of come together but then also to see that Um, we're not new to this you know the numbers may not necessarily be there but like there are people in our community that are excelling launching tech startups in tech fields Uh, and so for me that's why we started Black Tech Week.
2: Black Tech Week is that heat that's where you come and this is where you level up um, and this is where you get inspired to go down the next I guess the next path of your life you know what I mean so like when when we have these amazing speakers here, we have these amazing investors, this is where you need to come um, so that you can take advantage of it. And you have to, we have to reframe the way we look at technology. Technology is the equalizer. It allows you to compete with the big boys. Everything in society today has some kind of tech component to it, some te- kind of tech influence. Um, it utilizes technology. So the better you understand that industry, And that area of study, the better off you'll be. So don't look at Black Tech Week like, I don't know anything about tech. Whatever business, whatever career path you have, it has some tech bent. So you need to be there at the event and take advantage of it.
0: So there are other uh, people doing great things Mm -hmm. with Black Tech events. What makes Black Tech Week different uh, uh, beyond the geography? Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, I I mean, I think you can't say without the geography, right? So there is a Miami experience that I think is... Really important because people are drawn to Miami for every other reason aside from that. Um, but the other part of that, it's it's very much a family reunion. You know, we say that a lot, um, but it is. You know, um, we all kind of come together. Some of us see each other in passing throughout the rest of the year, and we come together at this conference. I think the other part of it is like there's a huge concentration on the conference part, but it's like it's a full week, right? And it's a full week for a reason. So there's a huge community component to it. There's a huge component of just like what like it takes to put together like a black tech ecosystem. Well like we have a women's innovation brunch, right? And then we have a family tech day where the whole family is there and not just dropping your kid off at like a coding boot camp or a robotics boot camp and go about your day. Like the whole family is included and in what that means, what that feels like and like how to celebrate like innovation in, in our community, um, and then we have like the you know pitch competitions and things like that. But that community component for us, I think, is what really makes Black Tech Week different, right? And so you look at the other conferences, and you know these are phenomenal conferences, but they are just conferences. Most of them don't take place in our neighborhoods, which I think is um, is something that's extremely important for us to do and then they're not really including all the all of our community, right? Mm-hmm. So you either got to know someone that can get you a pass, you got to be able to afford like the ticket. Like there's all these things that when we're in these rooms and we're talking about diversity and inclusion and when we talk about access, sometimes we're still we're we're we're, we're creating these separate rooms even when we are Together, trying to not create these separate rooms or 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 not create these barriers. I hope I'm making sense, but yeah. I think that's what really separates the separates Black Tech Week. Um, from some of the other initiatives is like we try and bring all of that under um, one week and kind of one umbrella and just really kind of being able to show people no matter where you are this is how you fit into the technology conversation Um, but most importantly this is how you fit in from a point where you can financially benefit from the activity that's going on um, as it relates to the tech um, and innovation economy.
0: You invited me to a panel. The title of the panel was moving beyond diversity economic empowerment you know my point of view is uh diversity is so ambiguous i'm not using that word i'm trying not to use that word right so everybody's uh pimping that out for for with various agendas and it doesn't really have a, a definitive meaning i feel like the word that we need to be using which you use is economic empowerment. Mm-hmm. Right. Can you explain that in terms of how you guys look at the evolving politics of diversity as it relates to black people specifically?
2: I look at it like hey, again like the statement I made earlier about like technology being an equalizer. It allows you to play, it allows you to compete. So it's all about inclusive and competitiveness. It's it's about black people being competitive at everything that we do and creating wealth for ourselves so the way i look at it and through our programs is that hey we have to we have to provide our people with enough resources and tools so that they can compete on a global scale because they're not competing with just the people in the united states they're competing with people from other countries and the fact that you got to have your own in this society because you have to people are five times as likely to hire people that look like them. So if we don't have these entrepreneurs, we don't have these tech professionals in positions to hire our people, then we're going to be left out of this new economic revolution.
0: Will your kids be using the word diversity outside of, let's say, a business conversation where you're, you know, but do you see your kids using that word diversity? Hey, Daddy, you know, they're talking about diversity are you against that the use of
2: that word? No, I'm not against not the use of the word, but I need to, she needs. What does to, that all, word mean to you? You have to clarify the word. Like, what diversity are you speaking of? Well, so there's people more people are com- talking,
0: saying diversity in broad terms, at least.
2: How? And and that's the issue. Yeah. Everybody's using broad terms. If you look at us, we're specific about what diversity we're talking about. We're talking about the diversity for black women and men. That's
0: when, like, for example, when Sheryl Sandberg goes on Bloomberg and says. You know, she talks about diversity. For me, in terms of the practical application, that really is, is like white women mm-hmm. right? uh, in terms of diversity. Right. But I believe that word uh, has been weaponized in a way that undermines our experience here in America as descendants of slaves. Meaning that uh, you know we're just thrown in into the bucket with privileged people and just hey everybody's in the same bucket.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, but everybody's not
0: getting shot. Everybody's yeah. not getting turned down, you know, with a 700, 680 FICO score for a loan. Mm-hmm. Nobody's riding in really that that seat, but we're all in the same diversity bucket.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the redefining of diversity in the present time is white women. Yeah. That's that's what they mean by it. So we have to be clear about, hey, what what is the diversity that we're seeking? What is the type of inclusion that we're seeking? Um, and we have to fight for it we have to have institutions and people that are willing to to have these hard, tough conversations.
1: I was gonna say, like, you, you see it all the, all the time, right? It's uh, women and minorities, a lot of times people say, right? And so when you talk about diversity, but then you, you follow that by saying, well, we're focusing on women and my, minorities, you're already cutting the black community out of it. A lot of times is how I see it, right? And black men. Yeah, yeah. but I, I think for us, it's like, you know, there was a reason Black Tech Week is called Black Tech Week. And that came with like a lot of issues in the very beginning um, of people wanting to say like, why don't you do it like Urban Tech Week? Or why don't you do Diversity Tech Week? Or like all these other uh, terms that kind of take the bite off of black, right? Or people will come to us and say, well, it just feels like it's excluding people. And I'm like, do you know how many like people and ethnicities and nationalities are represented under the umbrella of like when we say black, right? And so like most people just don't understand that and they fight back against that. But there's a reason why we have like been steadfast on like not changing the names and corporations have said to us like Hey, if you if it was called something else, like it would seem more inclusive and then we could we could fund that and we're just like Well allow those people no. to go through
0: slavery and, 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 and face some of the oppression and exploitation and discrimination mm-hmm. of black people. Right. Then we'll start pushing the flag of everybody else. Right, right. right.
1: Or, or oh. we've been asked like, why are um, are you doing this for? We love what you guys are doing here. Like, what else are you doing for like these other groups? And we're like, nothing. Which, like, there are yeah. there are organizations to support that. Like, get off of it and stop saying that. Like, stop feeling like this is excluding people. Like, we are unapologetic about like who we are serving, and it's either you like it or you, you don't. But like, who else is rooting for yeah. our our community if it's if we're not making blank um like blatant statements about like. What this is for. Would you like to
0: see your Mark Zuckerbergs, your Shell Sandbergs, your Silicon Valley establishment, uh venture capitalists, big tech? Would you like them when they're talking about the problem of inclusion, mm-hmm. underrepresented groups? Would you like them to call out black people? Name black people instead yes. of hold on, instead of people of color, instead of people of color, instead of diversity, instead of minorities. Mm-hmm. Do black people deserve to have their specific
2: group called out? I think we absolutely deserve that. Um, we're the ones that fought for civil rights in this nation. Um, nobody would have their rights without black people fighting for it. So for you to not call us out and, and fight for the, um, our, our, our race, you know what I mean, like and our ethnicity, is a slap in the face. Because half of the women that you have hired wouldn't have the jobs without affirmative action, which we implemented. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like, you have to, and and they're doing the same thing over and over again to us. By them not calling us out, they're not focusing on our issues and our needs. So we're not being included in that conversation. We're not benefiting from those discussions. So uh, out of sight, out of mind. And if they're not calling our names out, we're out of mind.
0: If we use their word, the establishment's word diversity, Mm -hmm. and we quantify the professional gains that are going to be made over the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. if we quantified it uh, in a 100% pie chart, what group is going to get? the most gains and what percentage would you you say that group is going to get out of that 100% if you were to quantify the professional gains based on the diversity politics that are going on?
1: I would say we're probably with 7
0: to 75%. So so for the black folks out there, I, I want us to appreciate this, that when you're waving that diversity flag and you letting everybody come in to the diversity politics, When a lot of these groups, they have not gone through your oppression. Mm -hmm. They're not facing what you face. When you let everybody into that diversity box, Mm -hmm. you are really waving a flag for white women. There's nothing uh, 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 against uh, white women. But to keep it real, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are paired up with the white man. Mm -hmm. right? So a lot of them come from privilege. A lot of them are not going to be discriminated against close to what your people are Mm -hmm. uh so until everybody could can bang on that oppressed slot on that exploited slot Mm -hmm. you can't you shouldn't be able to ride you should you shouldn't be able to ride it in 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 the same group Mm -hmm. uh do you guys uh, agree with that
1: so i agree and i think we've we've already seen that right so when we talk when When people are on stages, when they're promoting their new diversity program, they're very clear in saying women and and minorities, right? Um, They they separate that already. So I think to see what that looks like moving forward, we're already seeing that. Um, There hasn't been a change in that. Like Sheryl Sandberg does not talk about the intersectionality of me being a black person and also a woman. She's really talking about white women, right? And you saw her kind of... Uh, take a step back on that a few years ago when you know unfortunately her husband passed away and she became a single mother right and so you started seeing her kind of take back a lot of the things that she was saying in the very beginning because she's like oh I now understand that I'm talking to a diverse set of women I'm also now understanding that single women have different challenges than I had so like there there became like all these steps back that she started to take and what she was rallying behind, because I guess she kind of had like a moment of like um, a moment of kind of clarity around that. But you know, the the other side for me is like, yes, we have all these people that have platforms, but like I also want to see more people that look like us um, that are in those positions. You know, really kind of making a stake of like what like diversity should actually look like and what it is about our community. Personally, because what, what ends up happening is like people do say things and then they do a lot of like kind of either backstepping or apologizing or making concessions for other every other community but that but that is of ours and I think that's a problem. Facebook
0: recently recruited Khidem Shana from American Express, former CEO of American Express to its board. When you see that, hey, you know, they have their first non-white board member after a decade. Is, does that make you happy you you got a black face on facebook mm-hmm. you think that's progress
1: um i think on one, and i'm laughing cuz like on one hand we we kind of just got to celebrate every like small win right like at at a minimum of kind of being able to accept that but on the other hand it's we still have so much and so far to go right and so yes while that is like one kind of coin in a big bucket of fixing a lot of things it doesn't really it's great, but I don't know what it solves for at the end of the day of us moving forward, but it is a, it is a step, right? And I think if things can like kind of multiply out of him being in, in that position, I think that does become a win, right? So if you see more board opportunities open up for people that look like us and he's pushing that, then that's important. Um, if you see more of us like being employed for, the, for that kind of corporation because of the position that he's in, then those are wins. Um, do I hold my breath on those things? Not necessarily, but I'm just trying to look at it from an optimistic standpoint. For me, it's like, I'm tired of the first, right? Like, when do we move past that? And like Derek said, like, how do we become like more competitive? How do we, um, start making a bigger deal out of all this like BS that we see in order for like real stuff to start to happen?
2: Derek,
0: have you heard of Kim Chenault being in the streets? Is he is he in Overtown is he in Harlem is he in Compton is he is, um, is, has he been connecting with the black tech space have you heard him about have you heard anything about him uh, doing anything in the community
2: yes I've, I've heard of him like pushing things through for like say the Harlem Children's Zone or uh, digital undivided they were sponsoring them a couple of years um, for their conference in in, in New York um, so those are some of the things that I, I I've heard um, but I don't know intimately about his day-to-day operations, does he have a family foundation or not? Um, my thing is, uh, hey, are you going to fight for or fight against the, the bias algorithms that Facebook has running around? You know what I mean? Like that are going and, and not allowing people to put any ads up with the word black in it. Um, yeah. But then allow white supremacists to add. Put ads up twenty-four-seven or Russians to put used dummy accounts and, and put ads up. So it's just the bias that they have through the operation of the organization that I hope he focuses on and that he's knowledgeable of so that he can begin to influence.
0: You guys are diversifying, I'm talking about the Silicon Valley establishment, big tech establishment. You're diversifying because of the pressure. People have to put pressure on you, it becomes visible. Then you do something. But when you do something, nine times out of 10, are you hiring someone that you're comfortable with? Someone who's not going to disrupt your thinking? Where a lot of the people that these people hire, diversity, chiefs of diversity, Mm -hmm. they just start saying the same thing as the the, the company. They have no power. so, So are you hiring Negroes and Coons where you can check the box, but you're pushing a largely white supremacist agenda. And it's more of a PR play. And does face, has Facebook done anything to make you less skeptical of no. a hire of a Ken of Chanel, where you're doing that because you have conviction mm-hmm. and, and you're hiring somebody who's actually going to, you, you,
2: your thinking needs to be disrupted. He's that guy, is he, is he that guy? Facebook has done nothing to change my opinion of the way their software platform operates.
0: One supporter of your movement uh, is Chan Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. If, if someone donates or supports your movement, could you soften up what you got to say about Facebook? I mean, do you, do you see like a, a, a rational connectivity to where like a, a Chance Zuckerberg comes in, but maybe I don't want to go that hard against Mark Zuckerberg at an event or something like that.
1: We're steadfast in our opinions, you know? So, um, they have come on as a sponsor for, uh, two of our stops on our black tech weekend tour. Um, but that doesn't change the way that we feel about, um, not just their organization or other tech organizations that we don't think are doing a good job. Anyone going into a corporation, and that's why we don't work for corporations anymore, uh, but anyone going into the, into those positions then get uh, silenced a lot of times. Or that may have just never been their position to begin with and that's why it's a fit for them to be in those positions. But um, you know, if you are a sponsor of Black Tech Week or anything that you do, that we do, um, you have to be mission aligned with what we, we stand for um, and not be afraid to like have those conversations with us because we definitely have them. Um, and a lot of times those take place on the stages that are our conference.
2: Yeah, and we also have to note that Facebook and the Zuckerberg Foundation are two to- totally different entities. So one is profit-driven, Um, and one is controlled by investors and the largest shareholders. Even if uh, Chan Zuckerberg feels something totally different from Mark Zuckerberg, you still have all of the investors and the hedge fund managers who invested large sums of money into Facebook that control and dictate the operations of the organization because they're the ones that sit on the board.
0: In, in, In my view, in terms of a geographical area or an industry. Silicon Valley Mm -hmm. is the biggest, in aggregate, the biggest force of white supremacy in terms of programming, in terms of influence in the world. Mm -hmm. There's no other mecca in terms of geographical area in industry that has more impact on white supremacy And influence than Silicon Valley. Do you agree with that? Uh, Or if if not,
2: I think. What
0: what has the biggest expression of white supremacy as an institution or a group of institutions?
2: Coke Industries. (laughs) Like you, you know what I mean. Like if you talk about like the institutions that support. All of these right wing platforms and organizations, the Koch brothers have done more to support that movement than any other entity or group of people. You may say Wichita Kansas is is is, is the mecca you, you but, but, I mean? when,
0: but when you take the venture capital money and the the influence and the big tech money, and the, the folks at Google, the the folks at Facebook. And many believe that this is more of a monolithic uh, community where a lot of them think alike. Uh, Bubbleheads in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. So if you take their wallets and you take their tools, social media, Facebook, Twitter, as we have seen in the election in terms of how influential their platforms can be, how influential the robots that they're funding that's disrupting a lot of jobs uh, particularly jobs of people who look like us uh, of course they have uh, they're looking to disrupt uh, uh, burger flippers uh, they're rolling out a robot flippy they're looking to disrupt bodegas they're looking to disrupt truck drivers uh, so when you think about the institution of slavery right you're looking to exploit you're looking to make as much money as possible mm-hmm. I believe in aggregate this group uh, they have more impact uh, in terms of white supremacy. Than any other group, whether it's intentional or not. I'm not saying that, hey, they're going around waving the KKK flag, but the actual end result from a white supremacy perspective, in terms of inequality and keeping folks on the bottom, on the bottom, or go lower at the bottom, there's no force more powerful than Silicon Valley right now.
2: I would say no force more. Powerful than the Wall Streets, like because you have to look at it. Like it's the two. There's there's multiple financial capitals within the United States. You have Boston, you have New York, you have Chicago, you have Charlotte, and you have Silicon Valley, and you have Seattle. So if if you are a, a major player in finance and you, you reside in one of those areas, and you're the ones who are looking at this Silicon Valley it's like, hey, I need to get in on this B round, this C round, this D round, or this A round. Um, so and Or I need to invest into the fund for a Y Combinator. I need to invest in the fund for another accelerator. So it's, 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 I think it's more distributed uh, than we think. We just need to follow the money. In a lot of cases, you guys just look and see who are all of these financial institutions that are investing into these companies um, and controlling things, and who are, um, where do they get their money from? What what pension funds are they taking their money from?
0: Uh, what I would say to that is a, a fair point. But in two thousand eight, maybe you're right in terms of Wall Street, but in two thousand eighteen, I believe the power has shifted over to big tech in Silicon Valley, where uh, Obama, uh, as you know, uh, the Silicon Valley establishment heavily backed him uh, to get elected. Uh, A lot of folks from Silicon Valley went into the Obama administration. Uh, A lot of folks in the Obama administration went back to Silicon Valley. Eric Holder uh, starts getting checks from Silicon Valley. There's no real regulatory regime even wanting to study where this stuff is going out of Silicon Valley in terms of how it impacts society I believe politically and finan and, and economically the power shifted from Wall Street uh, uh, post financial crisis to Silicon Valley now and Silicon Valley now uh, from a wallet political perspective uh, they're, they're they're running things uh, right now uh, from my perspective which brings up the the point of Amazon. Not an SV company, uh, obviously, but some people think Miami has a good chance of uh, getting uh, Amazon HQ2. Would you like to see them here in Miami? And do you think Miami uh, has a good chance of getting that bid uh, in terms of Amazon bringing uh, 50,000 jobs in Miami?
2: Yes, I would like to see them win it. but Will they win it? I don't know.
0: You're not worried about gentrification or... How it could uh, disrupt the community uh, in terms of Seattle, let's say the the home prices, uh, uh, you know, meet the cost of living shoot up.
2: More. Well, the gentrification in in, in Miami County has been going on for for years, and it has accelerated. The H one n one visas, where they can get their visa by investing a million dollars in cash in um, in Miami, so and, and then that goes into the real estate, and that goes into the buying of homes that people could eventually purchase that that's always been going on. So if you like if you look at the, our communities over towns been bought up and sold years ago, if you look at Liberty City, a lot of that has already changed hands. So it's just the we're not going to be the economic beneficiary of an a- Amazon coming here. Um, because we no longer own large swaths of the land in the communities that we we traditionally re- reside in, we're renters, um, or we still have a few homeowners. We're all the way up in North uh, Miami-Dade County, so when Amazon comes and they're looking to acquire land, or and the um, the staff is looking to live in an affordable area, they're going to go into the communities that we ha- that have already been bought from us. That's that's. Uh,
0: so I talked about uh, Amazon uh, HQ2. I liked, uh, at least before some of the uh, political, recent political controversy, I liked uh, Atlanta's prospects of Amazon choosing Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And so one brother mentioned that there's a lot of pushback for that because they feel like if Amazon HQ2 lands in Atlanta, the city is guaranteed to flip from a black city to a white city. Mm-hmm. The first thing I thought about, man, there's a lot of black homeowners in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and so the equity values would really go up, creating possibly billions of dollars of wealth uh, over you know ten to twenty years in terms of homeowner equity appreciation from Amazon coming in. You know, do you think if Amazon landed in Atlanta, the benefits would would outweigh the, the uh, uh, some of the concerns and costs?
2: What are the concerns? They should have no concerns. Let's look at it. let's look at the history of Atlanta. Ever since uh, Maynard Jackson, the Untouchables, the black people who are not part of the middle class or who have money, have always been pushed out to the outskirts of the city and and the outskirts of different counties. So when you talk about um, the current predicament that Atlanta has, it's because they've been pushing their voter block out. If you look at the residential ownership rates, increasingly being purchased by uh, white people. Uh, So Atlanta is no longer a chocolate city to begin with. You know what I mean? Because everybody drives into Atlanta to have fun and then they go out to the outskirts. So when we start talking about the control of Atlanta, they they cause this themselves. I saw this back in like 2002 when I was going to Morehouse.
0: So, so whether Amazon comes in or not, yeah, the is going to flip anyway. It's
2: already going to be flipped. If you go and look sure. look, look where Martin Luther King uh, used to reside, if you're talking about Little Five Points, that has always that has been bought up. If you look at Georg- Georgia State has purchased more land on Aberna- uh, uh, Auburn Avenue in the recent years than any other institution. Their main campus is right down there. So if you're talking about where people can actually live within the city, the only Pieces of property that they can buy, buy now are lofts and condos and rent apartments, and they're not paying those astronomical rates. Like, even the, even though the cost of living in Atlanta is cheap, they're, they're going for the cheaper rentals in the outskirts, and then they're taking the mortar on back in.
0: If you like what you're hearing, you could check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. That's moguldom.com. We have the latest information on tech, crypto, the business of Hollywood, and economic empowerment. Uh, You can also check me out on Twitter at Jamarlin Martin. Let's get back to the podcast. So we're here at your headquarters. It's a massive space. I see a lot of people working here at night. Uh, Can you uh, tell our listeners... How did you get this space? What are you doing in this space? And kind of where you see things going uh, in the space? Uh, we're in uh, Overtown uh, while we're on the, the subject of gentrification. Mm-hmm. But if you could talk a little bit about that as well.
1: Yeah, so um, this space is uh, space called Tribe. It's a co-working and urban innovation lab um, based in historic Overtown of, of Miami, right outside of the downtown area. Um, a community with a very similar history to like Harlem, black business district that was here, you know, some 50 years ago that was demolished by the highway going through a very similar kind of black Wall Street story that we see across the United States. Um, and so this space came about um, from a conversation that we had um, with one of our sponsors almost about three years ago. Uh, and it took us about two and a half years. Uh, through kind of constructions and permitting and, and fundraising to get the space up to us being able to sit here today and, and have that conversation. Um, and for for us, the space, um, you know, for with Code Fever, like our, our mission has been like, how do we rid Black communities of innovation deserts? Like the disconnect that's that's there. Um, knowing that our community just has a lot of really amazing ideas and the resources and kind of like that magnetism to the resources just don't exist and um, for us it's about creating a space like this that allows for um, all of us that do really cool stuff to kind of come together right and work together break bread together and co-work together and like everything that that means um, that's why this space exists and it's you know it's for black entrepreneurs and black creatives and uh, people freelancers and like all those people that want to kind of come together as well as like students um, in order to just kind of collaborate, yes, but then like gentrification, like Derek said, is is really real here in, in Overtown, right? And the Bright Line is gonna be two blocks away from here. And so it's like, how can we create a space that's gonna combat that or put it that? The Bright Line station is gonna be close to here? It's oh, literally so three two, like, yeah, wow. two, three blocks and away. And that right is from here. the Miami station? That is the wow. Miami wow. station. Wow. Yeah, Okay. Yeah, but I think our biggest thing is like, how do we prepare our community to be able to take advantage of um, that, right? Yeah. Because um, there, I mean, the truth of the matter, it's it's gonna be a shitty situation, but there are still opportunities for our community to take advantage. And so, how do we do that? Like, will this space be able to provide? the people to come, to come together in order to, um, you know, help people get proc- procurement opportunities into, those, in, into that train station that they're building here. Um, and what does that just, what does all of that mean? Like, we don't have it all figured out, um, but our goal was like this, this space from now like, moving forward, that it allows like those kind of conversation and those collaborations to start to happen.
0: So I was on uh, Arlen uh, Hamilton's uh, the founder and CEO of Backstage Capital's uh, podcast, and I talked a little bit about a dividend that comes from failure. And I believe mm-hmm. culturally, a lot of our people, uh, you know, partially due to economic insecurity, we're really scared to failing and, and mm-hmm. taking a, a lot of risks as it relates to uh, entrepreneurship and, 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 and business. Um, can you talk a little bit about You know you guys were working on other businesses Mm -hmm. before this and I'm sure there was a lot of failure there Mm -hmm. that prepared you for this opportunity where you're growing your business you're growing across you know uh, other cities uh, you have a lot of momentum but how did your history of failure prepare you for this opportunity
1: yeah there's a long history of failure (laughs) a really long history of failure you know, I think from my first business in college and hiring one of my uh, classmates that ended up stealing my contract from me, and de- I was mm-hmm. devastated, and I swore off ever being in entrepreneurship again. To um, you know, running feverish and all the challenges that we had, right? So the challenges that we had with with our investors, um, the challenges that we had like opening a, a store and closing a store, um, the challenges that we had with like you know, we sold the company, but it wasn't a big sell, you know, so some people look at it as an accomplishment. And we're just like, we didn't hit the goals that we wanted to hit with that company, right. Um, and then even just with Code Fever and Black Tech Week, like, it's hard. Um, and, then, and then when you're talking about, like, doing that as a couple, like, that's a whole other, you yeah. know, layer. And then when you're talking about raising a, you know, now a four-year-old, that's a whole other layer. So there's there's been a lot of, like, really dark days, you know, we try to be really candid with that, because not a lot of people are. Um, They like to kind of gloss over, like, oh, this happened. And then, like, I'm here. And I'm just like, no, there are a lot of shitty days, like a whole lot of shitty days through everything that we've put together um, to kind of lead us to this point. And it's a lot. It has been a lot of kind of like betting the house, right? Just like we're going to go all in um, in order to like make this happen. And when that doesn't happen, in a lot of instances, like it's devastating. Um, but we believe so much in like building this and building capacity in our community that it, it allows us to keep going, but it's not always easy to keep going. Like mm. not at all, you know, so
0: culturally, uh, in terms of mm. how our people look at taking big risks with mm. business and failure, you know, do you see any nuances in, in terms of our appetite for business risk?
2: I think we have a huge appetite for business risk. We just like to do things collectively. The issue is that we're no longer working together on on these business ventures. We think we should go at it alone like everybody else, Mm -hmm. when that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. (laughs) And and in a lot of cases, we think they're going after it alone, but they're not. They're getting money from the trust fund, they're tapping into their friends, and the friend of the family is a lawyer, or the brother is a lawyer. Um, They they have all of these auxiliary sources of support that we don't have and that we think that oh, we don't need in order to survive as an entrepreneur. We should stick with our guns and stick with um, what we feel because we know we wanna go in with somebody else. We wanna work and have partnerships and organizations. So
1: The other part of that from a cultural standpoint, like, I don't think our, our community really understands what it means to fail, right? Um, that's a big heavy word in our community. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make um, early on is we tell our our young people that they have to work twice as hard. Um, And I think that's probably one of the most dangerous things that we can tell um, our young people and us, right, Mm -hmm. is that because that means that you, you don't innovate, you don't go outside of a box, you don't take risks because like I have to work twice as hard to be like half as good. And that's a problem. Um, and whether that statement is true or not, it just it doesn't allow us to, to do anything that even remotely is gonna lead us down a road where we think we're gonna fail because too much ends up riding on our back. And that's a heavy burden a lot of times for people to kind of have is like, I cannot do anything outside of the norm because if I fail, like what do I fall back on? And will my community understand that? And will they rally behind me like other communities do? Like, yes, you failed. Or like, yes, you failed using somebody else's money. Go back out there and raise some more. Go back. Like, that's very rarely a a conversation. you like, my parents are out right, right outside. My mom's Jamaican. My dad is American. And having a conversation with both of them around, like, failure, like, it's two different things, right? And it's two different things because my mom, my dad is an entrepreneur. He's been an entrepreneur for 20 years. And so he understands that. My mom is just like... What are you going to do? Like you, you know, you can't do this, and so we do have to change that conversation um, around what failure actually means. But then also change the conversation about what does success actually mean, because like those things need to be personally defined, and I think they need to be redefined as it relates to the Black community, because it stifles a lot of us. Like it stifles yeah. a lot of us more than we ever know that like that pressure to always be that one in your community that has to bring it home for everyone else in your family your block or like whatever like that's that's a problem that we have to fix
0: yeah Uh, and then also we need to appreciate that when you look at Uber, for example, Mm -hmm. the founder and CEO, his first company went bankrupt, Mm -hmm. filed for uh, bankruptcy. You see Sheldon Adelson, the founder, uh, and I believe now chairman of the Sands Corporation, uh, which owns a few hotels in Macau and Singapore and the Venetian. Uh, He failed on his first few ventures. And just based on real world experience, Mm -hmm. I feel like you're not winning as an entrepreneur until you go through one or two failures generally speaking yeah. and that most likely going to set you up for you to do the damn thing maybe mm-hmm. the third or fourth time yeah. uh, do you share that point of view i
1: i agree like so even like here locally i just remember like um you know there was a conversation with like the house of mac truck right and them closing down their um their south beach location and like the comments were like crazy like he didn't know what he was doing and blah 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 and then um you know the the founder of hugo fresh closed down all their stores two days ago um and in the comment section it was just like oh my god he was a pioneer and like he's still gonna do this and i'm just like why are these conversations so different you know yeah. what I mean? And like and that's a problem. Because like on the one end you can see like the vision that he this guy was able to create and respect that and understand he's going to bounce back and he's going to be able to build something else. But on the other hand, this the whole other conversation was just like dude didn't know what the f he was doing. Like he ruined it for every other black person that's going to try and open a restaurant. Like that's a, that's a that's a
0: problem. That's a yeah, definitely I mm-hmm. see a cultural issue yeah. uh, where People who are overly critical of Mm -hmm. entrepreneurs failing Mm -hmm. most likely don't come from a family that's building businesses. Right, right. right? And I feel at least my personal experience is that, uh, you know, you can have very harsh sentiments, particularly Mm -hmm. from uh, black people when businesses fail uh, without appreciation Mm -hmm. uh, of the fact that nine out of 10 businesses do fail. And you talked about your, 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 your non-profit. Uh, talk about that.
2: Uh, my non-profit is called Cold Fever Miami. Um, it started off as a coding organization. Uh, what we do is we teach full stack JavaScript development um, as well as social media management. We teach it to youth, we teach it to adults. Um, everything is, comes from an entrepreneurial um, perspective. So if they want to work for somebody, they can. But we prepare them to be entrepreneurs to start their own enterprises and make their own money and be the master of their own destiny. So that's what we try to do with that organization. We have a suite of programs and events, Black Tech Tech Week being our flagship event. We also have a VCN residence program where we actually try to break through and flip that model on its head um, because in the venture capital arena, you normally have to uh, know somebody who knows somebody to get an introduction. So what we do is we bring that entrepreneur to the local market and put them f- in front of the entrepreneurs and let them evaluate the company, hopefully invest in that uh, that business. Um, we have our road show where we're going to 10 different markets that's gonna be kicking off in 2018. Um, and we also have our monthly meetups that um, we operate in Miami uh, so that we can continue to stay on top of the community and provide them resources to scale and grow their businesses.
0: The black tech community, I noticed that Folks who raise a lot of money from the elite venture capital firms, Mm -hmm. that these are the people who a lot of people admire. Do you think that the values in the community are are kind of twisted, where even from a business perspective, right? In my mind, you're admiring people. Who generate a lot of revenue, people who generate a lot of profit, Mm -hmm. people who possibly employ a lot of people in the community, people who possibly are giving back to the community, people who are out there in the streets doing stuff for community in terms of CEOs, entrepreneurs. But it seems like a lot of people, their proxy for success is who the white folks are backing uh, and how much money are those elite white folks giving to that black entrepreneur? Do you believe that the the game is is kind of twisted where you know how much money you raise that's the the measure of success of, of, of the particular black
2: entrepreneur. Business 101 it's about how much profit you're making. So yeah. if, you, if it's not sustainable is 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 not valuable. The goal is not yeah, to it, raise it, the most
0: money. Yeah. It's, and, and and not only that the goal is not to back whoever white folks are picking or, or, or backing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that could be a luck game or there could be something else going yeah. on. It, don't you feel like the measure in terms of when we give props to people, we respect people. Uh, the measurement from a business perspective should be about, you know, mm-hmm. hey, this, this company is, uh, you know, generating a lot of revenue. This company is, is, is has great margins or profit. Are on the social side, this person is really in those streets, you know, doing good work in the community, that the values in the community cannot be cheerleading for whoever raises the most money from white folks. That's great, but that's not the proxy of success we're looking for, right?
2: No, it's, it's it's not the proxy of success. Again, it's about is that a sustainable business that they're creating? Are they hiring people from the community? Are they adding value to the community? Um, so when 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 we talk about the raise of the money, yes, you get that short term money, but what are you, what are you doing long term? Like, what is going to be the economic impact of that organization? Are you going to be able to hold that that um organization and become? A billionaire, because we have to understand where where we want to play. Where do you want to play? Do you want to play the power game, or do you want to play the show game? You know what I mean because yeah. people work, or are you trying to be like the Koch brothers, become a billion dollar company, and just influence policy and create the change that everybody wants? That's um, what that's what you, that's what you yeah. have to do. So, yeah,
0: I feel like the game, you know, in in some cases is is really twisted, where you know the community. We want to be supportive of everybody in the community. But as a, you know entrepreneur, raising capital is not a real metric. Hey, someone got some money, $5 million, $10 million. They were successful raising capital. But that's, that's not really a, a, a KPI, right? This, mm-hmm. a, a good, the entrepreneur is a good salesman. Mm -hmm. Uh, got lucky Uh, politics they're in the right crowd they're safe Uh, uh, but it just seems like you know I believe we're in an economic cycle uh, at the top of an economic cycle uh, as we saw in the financial crisis where too many people are focused on the wrong things it's not about raising capital it's more about profitability margins cash those things are going to be important when the next crash happens. And I believe uh, we're almost there.
2: Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's they're two different games. When you start talking about like the venture capital, venture to capital invests in ideas, large ideas that can scale and traditional private equity. They are focused on investing in actual businesses. How much revenue yeah. are you making? What are your profits? What are the key financial indicators that say that this is a healthy and viable business?
1: A lot of that is just like those are well-networked people, right? Like let's be honest about the situation. Um, And some of them are good. Some of them are good ideas, but a lot of it is well-networked. And you are a fundraising guru. Um, Does that convert? A lot of times, sometimes we see it, right? And sometimes we just we don't. We hear more and more stories about people are just like they raise a ton of money and it all goes to shit and nothing. Uh, And then they raise more money, again, for, like, that next idea.
0: Or pattern matching. Yes. Uh, Hey, you you sounding and thinking like some of these other motherfuckers mm -hmm. coming in here, but you're black Mm -hmm. and safe. Right?
1: Um, I think to, to answer the other part of your question, you know, like... What happened to just good old fashioned like customer funding, right? Uh, like sales and receipts, like what happened to that? Uh, and it's funny because I I've had a conversation with a, a startup founder here who is like, is struggling, right? Um, and not struggling in the sense of like his idea isn't working, like he's generating revenue. Like his company generates, you know, six figure revenue a, a year. Um, his profits are another story, but he's generating revenue, but he is obsessed with trying to raise um, um, investor funding. And I'm like, dude, like why? Like you yeah. have something that works. like why are you spending and exhausting all this time on the other end? And I get like you're wild, wild by the big big money and like, stuff like that, but like you'll eventually find the right investor that makes sense. Um, but you're also playing this, you're really more of a small business than you are a startup. And, and I think, that's okay
0: with and, a lot and, of and that's yeah. the thing. And, that's, yeah. and
1: it's perfectly fine. And like, if you spent like nearly half the time that you're spending running around to investors and getting discouraged for X, and, X, Y, and Z, whatever reason, and really kind of refocus that attention back into your business, like, you will have what you want. Like, what he's missing is a, is a few really good contracts, right? Um, and that's where like hope. That's where we hope like our econ- economic development arm plays a bigger role in like procurement opportunities. So there's a disconnect there, um, but that's where he and a lot of people I think should be more focused. And I think that's really the area of opportunity for for Black entrepreneurs, right? Like I think not saying that we can't play this startup game, but we cannot play this game the way the rest of the people are playing it. The rule books are not written Preach. for. they're they're just not written for us right and so like one of the first parts of like lean startup and like all these books is friends and family round and if you don't have that if there's the absence of that and not in general not not to talk in general terms but a lot of us just don't have that a lot of times our families are way are dependent most of them are depending on us to be that for them and so you can't really reach back in that way so if you're already starting at a um You know, you're already starting at a point where you can't play that first level of the game the way that that they're playing. How can we do that differently? And I think, you know, when you look at our economic buying power, um, when you look at Um, looking at procurement opportunities and contracts as opposed to chasing around startup funding, I think we can do a lot of things a lot more differently and see more success coming out on the other side.
0: What about the the black entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. He has a great idea, but like Mm -hmm. you said, hey, that's a small to medium-sized idea. Mm -hmm. It would have worked, but the Mm -hmm. VC, you start optimizing, and I had some experience with this. When Mm -hmm. you start engineering your original good idea, Mm to make it bigger, to make it big enough for investors. So yeah. you go out there and you had, you originally had a really good idea that could work. That mm-hmm. could have been a, a $5 million business, a $2 yeah. million business, a $10 million business, a $50 million business. Mm-hmm. But when you start messing around with Sand Hill Road in the Silicon Valley VC establishment, mm-hmm. they will turn the idea or influence you to turn the idea, hey, it has to be a billion dollar, Uh, Mm And so I see folks who may have an inclination to release more products than they should, Mm -hmm. go faster than they should, have more money than they should. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how good business ideas are being re-engineered to fit a box that they probably shouldn't be in? Where from the venture capitalist perspective, hey, I got 200 100 portfolio companies. I don't care if a company goes bust. This shit is either going to be a billion or nothing. And you guys essentially need to uh, be big enough for me to invest.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think that's, I think that's a lot of cases. That's a, a, that happens in a lot of cases. Even like prior to us walking into a, a, a VC and asking, making the ask, we're already thinking based on the books, like Felicia uh, alluded to, lean startup. Um, and pitch anything. All of these books talk about how big can you make the idea um, because venture capitalists only invest in huge opportunities. So we have to understand and take it back to the original uh, concept where, hey, it's fine for you to have a $100 million business. It's fine for you to have a two hundred million dollar business. You can eventually scale up to a billion dollar business if you want to, but most that has traditionally been done through mergers and acquisitions. So instead of you trying to become um, a whale, you should be a piranha, and then you should be eating up other fish until you get a swarm a holding company, an institution that has multiple streams of revenue that is now a billion dollar institution. Now you are forced to be reckoned with. So maximize the idea that you have, but always uh, look towards being bigger from different uh, areas of revenue. That's, that's how I look at it, because you can always be a great holding company. You can be a tech holding company, nothing's stopping you from doing so. Every idea that you have doesn't have to be a billion dollar idea. A hundred million dollars is fine with me. You know what I mean, and I, if I get nine more, I have a billion dollar institution. And that's what we have to understand, and that's, I, I think that's the mentality and mindset that we have to have, because again, we're not gonna, we can't play that game. We don't have the friends and family around. And they're not writing us the large checks as they're doing our counterparts.
0: So we're seeing, uh, uh, you know, black celebrities step into startup investing more mm-hmm. over the last uh, few years. Uh, Jay Z, I believe, is affiliated or uh, owns two uh, venture capital firms. Uh, mm-hmm. Kevin Durant, some of the Golden State Warriors, mm-hmm. Chris Bosh here in Miami. Snoop uh, just raised the fund. Uh, who is it? Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. How do you feel about black entertainers and celebrities investing in startups? Uh, you know, talk to our kind of audience about how you see, how you see things developing there.
2: I see it as a great opportunity. I see it as a great opportunity um, for uh, founders to get access to capital that they haven't had access to before. Whether that helps out black people, I don't know. Um, I don't know if they're investing in black companies um, to the level that they're doing uh, companies founded by other individuals. Um, And also the fact that a lot of times they're not the ones managing these funds. Um, They still have the same investment banks um, and accountings and lawyers who traditionally work for other funds who look out for their own uh, that are bringing the, them the deals. And those are the people in their network. They're, they're still not the people outside of their network.
0: Uh, do you think it's fair um, for an observer to say that, hey, all these black celebrities investing in tech startups mm-hmm. You know, we're out here, you know, some people out here uh, begging Silicon Valley, criticizing Silicon Valley in terms of what the white venture capitalists do, what the establishment does. But the black celebrity, you need to be allocating at a minimum 20, 30 percent of your fund to black founders. Do you believe that's that's fair to put that weight on our mandate on that black entertainer, black celebrity? Where would you be mad if, for example, Jay-Z's funds, you found out that... Dollar for dollar, only 5% went to black founders.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'd definitely be giving a side eye to it, but um, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it is their money, you know? I think, but like we all have, especially from the black community, you have a responsibility back to the community, right? Whether you honor that or not, it's just, it's always there. So, in an ideal world, I would love to see majority of their investments go to us. Um, but kind of leaning on what Derek said, like the deals that are coming to them, the circles that they're in, they're they're not always us, right? Um, I, I remember getting excited, I think like a week or two ago, I, I saw um, an NFL player um, invested in a tech, tech company here in South Florida. And I, when I looked at it and looked at the founding team, I was like, oh man. You know, I was a little disappointed, yeah. but um, I... Like, yes and no, you know, yes and no for me.
2: Yeah, it's. Okay. Again, it's, it's, it's their money. Um, you can't tell them what to do with it. You know, you, the only thing you can do is the work that we're doing. And that work includes just, hey, identifying the top black talent, um, pushing it out through social media, through our media partners, our PR partners, and just bringing awareness around. Um, those institutions and those uh, founders um, because that's the only way that we're actually going to be able to get on somebody's radar um, and, and again it's, it's, it's a word-of-mouth type of uh, environment so we again we try to do we try to cut through all of that with the programming that we do um, and how we support the entrepreneurs and the founders.
0: The endowments of Howard, uh, Spelman, and Morehouse Uh, in aggregate, is about $800 million. You know, they're investing it in stocks, bonds, real estate. Do you feel like they should be investing, or at least have a presence in black tech? Meaning that between them, obviously they have obligations, but if they're going to be investing in, you know, conventional investments, you know, why aren't they establishing connectivity or more connectivity with the black tech space have do you guys ever see hbcus in terms of anybody affiliated with the endowments or anything in the the kind of startup investing space uh specifically talking about black founders
2: nope i haven't seen any announcements or or any agreements like published that talks about um HBCUs investing their endowment into a a fund. Um, That's something that they can do. It it doesn't have to be... It it can be 1%. You know what I mean?
0: Start nibbling on on, on some of the the entrepreneurs out there and you guys may be able to get out your mess or the the mess that I believe that's coming with a lot of HBCUs. I feel like they need to be out there uh, developing networks uh, with... Folks like you, uh, black tech entrepreneurs who are out there hustling, and if they can develop a proprietary network where they get very interesting investment opportunities, uh, possibly that could help them get out the mess that they're in. Uh, in terms of if you're not going to mess uh, or connect with the innovation economy, right. particularly mm-hmm. with your graduates. You're not going to be winning in the future, meaning that you're going to have to have a competitive advantage in terms of the endowment investing model exactly. to be competitive.
2: Yeah, and yeah. It, you also have to create that culture within the students as well. You have to create a culture of um, inventing and 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 being a startup founder and entrepreneurship. That that's that it goes hand in hand. So if you're not doing that from a curriculum. And a programming standpoint is not even going to benefit you uh, from the venture capital standpoint because a lot of the ways that these institutions like MIT is making money is because they have these brilliant students coming up with amazing ideas, creating patents, uh, getting a piece of that patent. Um, Come back and donate to the university. And and then come back and donate, you know what I mean, after they make millions of dollars. Uh, So that increases your endowment and that gives you a return on your investment into that person so we, we have to we, ha- we have to do a better job of that um, because again one of the if you look at every major uh, pretty much every major Ivy League school they have some kind of uh, revenue generating for-profit entity whether that is they're buying up all the real estate in the black neighborhoods that they have their institutions at and for, from an Ivy League perspective or they have that medical hospital that's bringing in billions of dollars a year they have something that's generating some money. Um, and they have provided resources, um, and support for entrepreneurs who have become successful to reinvest into the institution itself. Hey,
0: the HBCU, uh, leadership, the establishment, they're probably not going to step up and really get it anytime soon, but what about black entrepreneurs donating their equity to the endowments? What do you think about that idea?
2: I love that idea. Yeah. Um... That's something that I eventually want to do, Uh, so I'm all for it, so donate that money to Morehouse.
0: Let's thank uh, Felicia and Derek uh, from Code Fever and Black Tech Week. Make sure you check them out at blacktechweek.com. Make sure you attend the next Black Tech Week. Uh, It was a really transformational experience for me. I got a chance to connect with some really great people, great programming. They put on a great event. Uh, Make sure you come to Miami. Can you tell our audience your next uh, events that are coming up?
1: Black Tech Weekend, LA, April 4th through the 6th. And then our next few cities after that are New York and Charlotte and D.C. And
0: Philly, yeah, for Philly Tech Week. And where would the audience go to get more information on those Uh, events?
1: BlackTechWeek.com or BlackTechWeekend.com.
0: Okay, uh, check out Black Tech Week. Let's go. Thanks everybody for listening to Go. You could check me out at Jamal and Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com that's m o g u l d o m.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment and politics. Let's go.